I think there's a temptation. Uh, oftentimes people will say, okay, you know, how can you get me on TechCrunch? And I say, get on TechCrunch, it's not gonna do anything for you until you have a product that's working or any kind of publicity, right? And I think that that's, I think that one of the things that I, I really am glad about with Gizmodo is that I was able to make my state my mistakes when we were small and nobody cared. And I think that that's something that, you know, it, it, obscurity is your friend when you're starting out. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Peter Rojas, who is the founding partner at Betawork Ventures, a seed stage venture capital fund based in New York City and San Francisco. He's also the co-founder of several startups, including Webblogs, which was acquired by AOL in 2005, where he also created and was editor-in-chief of both Engadget and Joystick, a Gizmodo company formerly known as Groka Media, now part of Univision. He also created a music discovery service called Record Label and Gadget, a social commerce platform, which was later acquired by AOL in 2013. I really enjoyed this episode because I got to talk to Peter not only as an entrepreneur and a founder, but also as a venture capitalist, which is always great as you get different perspectives on things. All right, guys, let's get into the episode. So Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on. No worries at all. So Peter, before we talk about uh, Betaworks and the, and the great work that you guys have been doing over the years, um, how do you introduce yourself to people when you at a WeWork event or a Betawork Studios event, actually. Yeah, so it's been it's been a long time since I've had to uh, been able to introduce myself in person to anyone, but um, and who knows how much longer that will go on. But uh, so I usually say I'm a partner at Betaworks Ventures, uh, which is a pre-seed and seed stage fund uh, focused on frontier consumer technologies, uh, and we're based in New York and San Francisco. Uh, I'm in San Francisco. Uh, you obviously can't tell uh, behind the microphone. Uh, and then before that, I was a uh, technology journalist and blogger and startup founder and created um, some of the most popular technology websites around, including Gizmodo and Engadget. You certainly did. Um, and so, yeah, before we talk about Gizmodo and all the other companies, um, talk to me about early life. So where did, where did you grow up? And I guess, where did this knack for like editorial and entrepreneurship come from? Uh, that's a great question. Um, and uh, so I grew up in California, uh, but my family's from South America originally. Uh, my father moved to uh, the States in the early 70s. And um, I was actually born in Detroit, where my dad was doing his residency. And then we moved to California 1977, I think, when I was a couple years old. And um, I think I got my early love of technology, you know, from my father, who was, um, I mean, he was a physician, but he's also um, sort of a pro semi-professional photographer who um, was, you know, sold his work uh, sort of professionally, sort of, sort of as a hobby that he made some money from more than, uh, you know, something that he, he did to earn a living. Right. Uh, right. But also, um, you know, someone who was a sort of a, a classic consumer technology early adopter. So, I mean, we had an Atari 2600 when it came out and I guess we got one in 1981 or something like that. Um, we had the first, uh, we had our VCR in 1980. Uh, he bought the first CD player that was sold in the U.S. in 1983. We had um, uh, a PC, a very early PC and by must have been 1985, 86 or something like that. And so we, um, you know, he was someone who was always very curious about, about, technology and computing and, and, um, he was an audiophile and, um, you know, I, I think I just got some, you know, it's very natural to inherit that sort of fascination or curiosity about tech. And it was kind of fun to always be, you know, you always had a bunch of like random old things in the house that you could tinker around with. And so when I got into music and started playing in bands and things like that, when I was uh, in middle school, um, there were just always like random old like tape decks and things like that that were around that I could I could play around with. Yeah. Um, and so kind of just got that love of, you know, opening a drawer and finding a bunch of random cables and components and just trying to see what you can do with it, which you can't do as much today with the digital stuff. You have to do it in a, you know, a different way. Yeah. Interesting. And so from, I guess, with that interest in music, is that what kind of led to kind of like the media side of things? Um, 
Yeah, I'm not sure that that's it's funny that I I ended up in media almost as a last resort. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, So I had uh, I had gone to college and um, I I, I thought I originally wanted to be an academic. And so one reason I, I, I went to grad school in the UK, went to University of Sussex and got my MA in English literature with a focus on post-structuralism and I had thought that I wanted to be an academic and, and go on and get a PhD. And, um, it took a year off from everything, not it took a year off, but I decided to take a year before applying to graduate programs to work and ended up working advertising, found I was out, I was terrible at that. Uh, and, um, but wasn't sure I wanted to continue on and become an academic. Uh, it just didn't feel like the right thing for me, but didn't know what else I wanted to do. And so went to films, you know, sort of taking like night classes at a, you know, film night school, film classes at an art school in San Francisco mm-hmm. where I was living at the time uh, and um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do and ended up um, applying for a bunch of different jobs. Uh, and uh, one of them was at a magazine called Red Herring. And this was in 1999. And uh, they were a business of technology magazine that was covering the dot-com wave that was hitting uh, at the time. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I, I managed to get a job there. Uh, not really qualified to do it. Uh, certainly didn't have really much of a journalism background. Had had interned for a magazine when I was in college, and um, uh, but not even really writing, just more sort of editorial assistant type work. And uh, I got this job, and they're sort of thrown in the deep end of the pool, where all of a sudden I'm I'm just writing stories for them. Uh, and my early work was just terrible. I mean, I I, um, I I think if the place hadn't been growing so fast that they I mean, they were just, I was, I think the ninth editorial hire. And at the time at their biggest, uh, I think a year later, they were at 65 editorial people just on the editorial team. Uh, and, um, uh, I I think, I think I had some space to hone my craft and get better at it. I had some amazing mentors there like O Malik, uh, who is, um, uh, you know, someone who kind of took me under his wing at Red Herring and, and, and taught me a lot, uh, Blaze Zariga, um, also. And, um, you know, I had that opportunity to sort of get better at it and discovered that I actually really loved writing about technology. Mm. Um, it, it's something that it's kind of funny to get the job and then discover you like it and that maybe even you're good at it yeah. um, rather than the other way around. So I was very, very, very fortunate in that respect. Yeah. It sounds very gratuitous. And and so you just fell into that. They automatically just put you into the technology kind of like space at Red Herring, or was it all they worked about? It was only it was only technology. Okay, um, but business of technology. So it was a technology business publication. They were writing about startups and and oh, like TechCrunch um, before its time. It was absolutely TechCrunch before its time, uh, uh, and um, and so. Uh, I mean, it was um, you know my focus was on emerging technologies and emerging. Countries, so I would write about things like Napster, uh, mm-hmm. and then I would also write about I would go to Nepal and you know cover the what the internet was you know transforming, uh, with the, how the internet was transforming places like Nepal or South Africa, and so I, I really loved the job. And when I lost it in May of two thousand one, I was absolutely gutted. Oh man! And um, and did not know. I mean, they they laid everybody off because the the market crashed, and uh, the magazine couldn't continue to function, and so. Um, didn't know what I wanted to do and ended up moving to New York in 2001, actually supposed to move on September 11th. That was my flight to New York that, that, that day ended up moving about three weeks later and, um, tried to be a struggling freelance writer yeah. uh, f- during that time. Yeah, New York is just the place that, you know, if you're not sure what you want to do or you think you know what you want to do, like just go and like just be poor there. Like if you're going to be poor anywhere and chase your dreams, you want to make sure it's in New York. <laughs> yeah, it, no, and, and I was I was definitely, uh, I definitely did not make very much money <laughs> in the first few years I was there. Um, I think it's a good place where you, you can't stay there forever. No. Uh, uh, it's a hard place to stay forever without, you're kind of forced to, figure out what you want to do. And I think that it was really good for me to, um, to feel that pressure. And I definitely, I was, um, I, you know, my, my dream was to be a writer for the New Yorker. <laughs> that was, um, that was sort of what I aspired to do. I didn't really know how to get that mm. job. Uh, I certainly applied for a lot of jobs. I applied for a job at Wired, for example, and didn't get it. Um, I did freelance for them, but, uh, I, I ended up having to create my own job because no one, literally no one would hire me. I applied for, you know, probably dozens of different editorial jobs. Not that there were even that many out there at the time. Uh, and, um, 
and didn't get anything. I got a little bit of freelance work and uh, ended up starting Gizmodo with Nick Denton. In we launched in July of 2002. I think we started kicking around the idea in February of of that year. And that was your so a, that was that was your first entrepreneurial venture. I guess at the time you did. I yeah. think, did you know it was entrepreneurial, or were you just like? No, not at all. I didn't think about it that way because I just thought of it as. Um, you know, I, 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 Nick and I were both very interested in blogging. We both had personal blogs and we were fascinated by this site called Wi-Fi networking news, right. which was, um, you know, if you think about like how a lot of journalism, technology journalism at the time was, you either had trade publications, which were aimed at people in the industry, or you had these really dumbed down, um, you know, just sort of general, you know, like, like the, like, uh, general, like, like general coverage of stuff when people were like, when there was an announcement or something, you know, like in the, like the technology section of like the New York times yeah, or, like, you know, something like that. It, or something like that. Yeah. And there was nothing aimed at people that were sort of enthusiasts around technology mm. and it kind of looking back kind of crazy now, but at the time there just wasn't a, um, th- there, there wasn't, um, you know, anything that was targeting people that were, they loved gadgets. They loved technology. But they needed something that was not tuned for people in the industry, which they're not in the industry necessarily, right? Mm. Um, but also isn't sort of watered down mass market coverage. Um, and so we saw Wi-Fi networking news, which was you know, taking advantage of the fact that with a blog, you can publish for basically nothing um, and target a niche. And the niche doesn't have to be huge. It just has to be big enough to support basically one person. And so that was what the idea where the idea for Gizmodo was born was, Hey, we don't have to be huge. We don't have to be seen at to be successful. Um, we can just, uh, be one person writing in their spare time, which is the plan, uh, and, um, and go after people that just want to up about gadgets every day. Yeah. And we'll see if people are interested. If people aren't, we'll do something else. That's great. We'll move on. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great way, like, without you even knowing at the time, ultimately what you were trying to do was, you know, kind of like, you know, follow Kevin Kelly's mantra of like, you know, 10,000 true fans, I guess, like, you guys were... Yeah, there's, a, there's definitely like, a, I mean, and that's, you know, Kevin was definitely somebody that, you know, we read and followed, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, think... 1,000 um, true fans, not 10,000. 1,000. <laughs> yeah, there's 1,000 true fans, yeah. right? And, and I think, um, and, and, you know, I think that it was partly that... Um, you could go after a niche and you could do it uh, profitably is sort of implies that it's, you know, that it's, you know, there's gobs of money at stake, but it's that you can do it and not, uh, you know, it's not a, not a charity either. Right. It's not like, you know, being subsidized, like you can break even doing it. And, um, and that was really just the goal is like to see if we can make something like that work. And to, I think my astonishment and Nick's as well, it grew, it grew really fast. I mean, we got to 50,000 readers in like a few weeks, which That's again, crazy. for someone who, you know, was at a magazine that had a hundred thousand readers, <laughs> um, the idea that you could get to 50,000 in a few weeks was just mind blowing. And this is before you had social media or all these ways of getting distribution. I mean, you didn't really, you couldn't even count on Google at the time yeah. to send you readers. Um, and so, where were these readers coming from? Did you know where they, so we, sent out an email to people and then uh, to people on other blogs and people on other blogs would uh, blog about it and blog about the things that we were writing about linked to us. It's very, very much a, a culture of linking to other people's work. Mm. And, um, and what would happen is people would find something they liked through a blog that they already read. And then they would start reading that blog too. It was, you know, the early days of RSS readers. It was the early days of people not being so overwhelmed that they couldn't add you know, just some bookmarks to their browser and have a set of like five or six sites that they visited every day. And one of the things that we found is that when we, people found us, they kept coming back, especially with Engadget, even more than Gizmodo, I would say. Uh, And, um, you know, even as late as, I mean, when did I leave AOL the second time? Uh, 2015, as much as over 50% of Engadget's traffic was direct traffic. Wow. Even as late as 2015. I don't have the numbers after that, but which is just phenomenal. It's people choosing to open the site every day. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Like the organic reach in media is vital. Um, you don't want to be paying for traffic because then they get into this horrible game. Um, and so, so you guys eventually, I think you merged or you were acquired by Grokka. Is that correct? By what? Oh, by Gawker. Uh, no, what happened was, um, it, so 
essentially what happened was Nick was doing another startup, uh, which actually was called Kinja at the time. Um, and, uh, and so the Gizmodo, and so he decided to, he wanted to start a second site that was like Gizmodo, but focused on New York. And that would be called Gawker. And so he brought in Elizabeth Spires to run that site. And, um, you know, Gizmodo and Gawker were sort of like a little fun side project mm -hmm. for him. And uh, Kinja was the real business. And then Kinja didn't work out. And then Gawker and Gizmodo became the real thing. And he decided to organize everything under Gawker Media. Right. And so, I mean, it's sort of a merger or absorption, like more of an absorption than anything yeah. else. I was guess. it still just you writing at the time? Or was it like a team? Yeah. No, it's just me. It, oh, wow. Until I, the day I left Gizmodo, I was the only person who ever contributed to it. Wow. wow. Yeah. For the first, I was there two years, roughly. Yeah. Um, and uh 20 months or so and um 22 months i think and uh yeah i was the only person who ever wrote for it uh, until i left and uh and same thing with elizabeth and, and and gawker um it was meant to be you know one person writing in their spare time that was the model and the reason the primary reason i left is because i wanted to spend all my time just on gizmodo i didn't want to have a second thing that i did or other freelance work that i did to support myself. Uh, and so Gizmodo Nick, wasn't making and, enough revenue for you to like this. It, it made some, but it, remember this is again before Google AdSense, right. um, you know, at most ad networks would not, uh, ad, would not uh, work with a blog. Um, you know, it's a very different era. So yeah. the monetization was much more challenging. So we made a little bit of money, but not very much. And, um, you know, but again, my vision was, I want to make this my full-time thing. I think that I can, with a team of people, I can build this into a competitor for CNET, for Wired, and, you know, take a run at being a world-class technology publication. And Nick just had a difference of opinion, um, fundamentally. And, you know, he came around to my, for a few of things <laughs> after I left. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it wasn't that he was, I mean, you know, in one sense, I was right and he was wrong, but, um, uh, but I also think it's reasonable to say, Hey, a blog can just be a part-time thing that you do for fun. Right. Or sort of, or that you do kind of casually while you do some other thing. Right. That's also a completely legitimate approach to blogging. And that was the predominant approach to blogging at the time. So I don't think that in, you know, I don't think that he was, I hate to characterize it of one person being right or one person being wrong, but, um, you know, if you want to turn it into a real business, I think that you have to take the path that I you know, I took in that he ended up taking with Gawker as well. Right. And then that kind of led you to your, your next venture, I guess, in Gadget. Yeah. And so, um, I ended up, uh, starting another company, uh, a new, uh, business with Jason Calcanis and Brian Alvey called Weblogs Inc. They had been, um, kind of trying to cobble together a blogging network and, uh, Jason reached out to me, uh, would have been like fall of like, kind of like maybe December of 2003. And, um, you know, basically tried to recruit me to, to join him and Brian. And, um, you know, I'd known Jason a little bit when he was doing Silicon Alley reporter it was sort of a, sort of the New York rival to red herring. Right. And, um, so I, I knew who he was and, uh, we got to know each other a little bit, uh, and, you know, decided to, to work with them. I had, uh, frankly, the support to, um, you know, build the thing I wanted to build. I had, uh, you know less meddling, I guess, uh, than I, I had before. And, um, you know, with Brian and his experience around building content management systems, we really had the tools to be able to do the things that we had been sort of limited in doing before with Gizmodo, which was running on movable type and movable type was, was great, but you, you couldn't, um, you know, you basically were dependent on them to introduce new features for it. Right. Um, and there were things, I mean, comments didn't even exist for blogs at the time. Um, timing posts to go post things to be posted in the future wasn't even a feature even a thing, yeah. uh, at, the, <laughs> at the time, you know? Um, so if I wanted to, I mean, I had to be physically press the publish button wow. for something to go up on the site. I couldn't just sort of time it and go to sleep. Wow. Uh, very different world. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, our ambition with Weblogs Inc. was to grow a big blogging network to target all these different niches to, you know, work off of a common content management system. Mm. And uh, and so I started Engadget as uh, sort of one of the flagship sites there, uh, then created and started and edited Joystick, um, which was sort of spun out of it, the gaming part of Engadget. That was maybe like three, four months later. And, um, you know, originally Engadget was just me, but um, 
uh, a few months in, I started to recruit, you know, other people to write for it and brought in Brian Block as managing editor, who was just phenomenal, absolutely indispensable and, um, and helped really, you know, being able to have that a bigger team around us, um, meant that we were able to do things that like blogs hadn't done before. Like we started publishing 24 seven, which a blog hadn't done before. Wow. Um, you know, we were live blogging, uh, events, which people hadn't done before. <laughs> there were all sorts oh. of things that like we were, you know, we moved very, very, very fast. And, um, and you know, I think we're really worked to change the metabolism of technology publishing, maybe for the worse in some respects, right? Cause you know, you move fast and you make mistakes. Yeah. Uh, and we certainly made mistakes ourselves, but, um, you know, I think that we really tried to, um, you know, capture what we ourselves as, you know, big enthusiasts around gadgets and consumer technology wanted, which was sort of a very uh, fresh, authentic, transparent, you know, voice around this stuff um, that sort of, you know, acknowledged that we were, we're all passionate about these things and, and we might have disagreements, um, but we're all very, very keenly interested in, in hearing about everything related to going on in this world. Yeah, no, that's crazy. And you, I mean, you guys, obviously, you were at that for just over four years. You guys launched a podcast as well during that time, which... Yeah, one of the, one of the first podcasts. I will give the credit to Phil Tyrone, who was one of our contributors yeah. at the time, one of our uh, editors. And, and so he, um, he just said, hey, we, there's this thing called podcasting. And um, at the time, if you wanted to listen to a podcast, you had to basically hack iTunes to, to accept RSS feeds. And it was like very shady. Everything was hacked together. Not shady, but it was definitely, um, uh, you had to really like hack things together to get it to work. Right. And, uh, and so he said, I want to start up, I want to do a podcast. And we're like, cool. Like that sounds great. <laughs> uh, and so, so he started it. Uh, and then eventually uh, maybe like two months in, three months in um, Ryan and I ended up taking it over. Um, Phil left to go to make magazine, I think, um, where he did an awesome job there for them. I mean, rest in peace, the magazine, but, um, which was great. But, um, but, uh, you know, he was, uh, uh, just a phenomenal talent. Um, and, uh, you know, he, uh, uh, he, he really, at the time, you know, he really opened our eyes to like, you know, to podcasting as being a thing. And, and, uh, uh I'm so glad because, you know, I, I love doing the Engadget podcast and have since done, three more podcast series since then, I think. I don't have an active podcast at the moment, but, um, I, you know, I always love doing one. Yeah, no, they're obviously great fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and Jason still loves it. I mean, he's got like one of the biggest podcasts now that we can start up. like, it's insane. I know, I know. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, he's, um, you know, he, I mean, his studio setup is is, is really great. Yeah. And he is, um, he's done a great job. Yeah, so, so you guys eventually sold this business right like and at the time of the acquisition how how big were you i mean across the whole network we must have been eight or ten million monthly active wow monthly active monthly i'm trying to remember what we how we described at the time because it wasn't a user in the sense of i mean uniques i guess monthly uniques or something like that is what we said um it was pretty it was pretty substantial i mean engadget grew like really fast yeah um, you guys had other you know sites within the you know, joystick and you had joystick and we had uh we had an we had an apple website and we had um you know we i mean we had all sorts of stuff uh in the i think there was something like 80 different blogs at, at the time of the acquisition and um you know in the aggregate they ended up you know equaling a lot of traffic yeah and you know how many employees were you guys did you guys have at the time so relatively few full-time employees, um, it was myself. Um, and actually I didn't take any salary the entire, until we were required. Uh, yeah. Um, because we just couldn't, I mean, every dollar that we had that we could, we put into that in gadget had, we put into the writers and we paid them as well as we could, which was still not good enough. Um, they certainly all deserved more than they got paid at the time. But, um, as soon as we got acquired, I, 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 made as many people full-time employees as I could and then bumped up everybody to like freelance contracts and, uh, you know, and, and all that. Um, and then, and then we actually went through and, and gave everyone a bonus for every single post they had written. Oh, wow. That's great. Uh, on top of that. Yeah. And so, um, the, um, so full-time it was myself. Um, we had a, uh, Sean Gold, who was our sales guy, um, Brian and Jason and then Judith uh, Meskill, who was sort of like the chief, um, 
sort of like the head of the like kind of managing like the network of bloggers right. i guess maybe a good way to describe it i can't remember what her official title was, was. A, pretty lean, so, a lean organization not many. yeah it had to be i mean we had a lot of we had a lot of part-time bloggers um but we definitely um uh you know or, or some people who are even you know working full-time on a freelance basis but we but we you know did not have the opportunity to bring those people on full time until we were acquired. Right. And which is one reason we were, were excited to do the acquisition, frankly, is because it meant that we could, you know, get people healthcare and real salaries and all sorts of stuff that we couldn't provide. Before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, cause you know, you guys didn't take any investment. You guys were going. No, that's not true. We raised money from Mark. We took, uh, we raised money from Mark Cuban. Oh, Mark Cuban. Okay. Yeah. How did, how did that come about? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think Jason had known him from the uh, Silicon Alley uh, reporter days. Right. Okay. And Silicon Alley, if I'm correct, did that ultimately become what Business Insider is now? No, that's so. That's Silicon Alley Insider, which ah, was yeah. uh, so Silicon Alley Reporters was earlier. It was a magazine that Jason ran. Okay. Getting confused. Okay. So Mark Cuban guy, you know, obviously at that time he was like extremely wealthy. Um, how, oh yeah. How yeah. yeah. Invest in you guys. I mean, it was, we, it was like 300,000, I think that was all. And we never, you know, it was, uh, um, that was sort of the, the rainy day fund right, right, right. for us. Yeah. Because I guess at the time you, it, it was quite difficult to pump money into traffic. I mean, you couldn't acquire, tra- I mean, we, yeah. we never bought, paid for any traffic yeah. ever. <laughs> there was no to buy it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, no, you wouldn't do it. It, would, it. it was anathema to us. So the AOL acquisition happened and. You know, I guess you, you guys did pretty well off off of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, I have no complaints. And um, and then and then you stayed work your that period, and then and then what did you what did you do next after that? So I had done um, while I was still there, I started a, a like a music company. I don't know how I pulled this off, but I basically just told them like I'm going to do this thing on the side, and they didn't say no. <laughs> um, and, uh, so I, I started a music, uh, startup called record label, which I did with, uh, downtown records, which is a label that, um, at the time they had like Gnarls Barkley and most staff cold war kids and Santi gold artists like that. I don't know who they have now on the label. Um, and, uh, and so the idea was to do kind of take some of the things that I've learned about blogging and about, um, you know, content distribution and, and, um, and apply their sort of access to artists and, and music and try to build something where we had, um, almost sort of like, if you wanted to take like a, like a, like an ad supported or sponsor supported free music platform right. and, um, curated music platform. And so, um, it went through a, f- a few different iterations before I ended up leaving um, to actually leave AOL and do a startup, but um, do another startup. But we ended up um, with this sort of like kind of like a like a curated daily newsletter around uh, giving away f- like free music and um, free MP3s. And I think we got to like 175,000 subscribers. Wow. It was for, I mean, it's free. Um, but it got pretty, a pretty substantial list, um, by the time that the business ended up shutting down, Isn't but, like um, a, a SoundCloud, this is like a precursor to SoundCloud, right? Well, yes and no, because you couldn't upload, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't up, like a random person couldn't upload their own music. Right, right, right. It was, like, um, it was a curated catalog. And so we had, a, we had thousands of artists that we worked with, you know, and you could download like tons of stuff from the, you know, for free from the website. Um, it just like never quite got to like the right scale. It, it should have either, it, it should have either been more like an agency, right. Where we worked with artists and helped them like license their music and monetize it and, and gave it away to help build, you know, drive awareness of it. Or we should have um, been more like SoundCloud, which is still a really hard business. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's yeah, like we, SoundCloud has said, <laughs> I don't want to minimize like, I mean, I, they've done, uh, they've, they've they've accomplished a lot, but it's also uh, an extremely difficult oh, um, very, category. Very so, um, so I did that. I worked on that for maybe, let me see. I started working that in middle of 2006. I left AOL in 2008. So, and you were funding uh, it yourself, I would imagine, with your... I just paid for it. I, yeah, I mean, downtown and I paid for, like, funded that ourselves. And then um, I left uh, to start Gadget GDGT with Ryan, yeah. Ryan Block, in f- summer 2008. Uh, and I had left 
a record label. I mean, it's funny. It's like so long ago that I can't remember every, I had left maybe, maybe six months earlier. I had left record label. So maybe I left it later. I mean, it might've been later that I left it, but, um, I basically got to a point where I was, we were raising money for, for gadget and, um, you know, we, we started raising in fall of 2008 and actually had to stop. But when we started back up again in 2009, uh, investors were pretty clear. They're like, you know, we want to make sure you're only working on one thing. And, and the thing that I was most excited about was gadget. And yeah. so that's what I focused on. Right. And so what was gadget? I mean, I know it was a, it was a social commerce startup focused on consumer electronics. So kind of still in the wheelhouse of what you are super interested in startups, tech. Yeah. Um, and it was another, and it was, um, it was a platform. So how did it, how did it work? Uh, so what we started with was, uh, creating a highly structured database around consumer electronics products. And, uh, the idea was eventually that we would expand to other product categories, but we wanted to start with consumer electronics. And so we generated these, um, really, uh, um, these basically these schemas around each category. Uh, and then we started building out the product database, I mean, which you have to kind of do by hand. I mean, there's really no, I mean, maybe there's some ways you could do it via machine learning now, but, um, but we basically had a team of researchers like build this stuff out. And we started, we launched with 3,500 products. And I think at the time we were acquired, we had 34,000 uh, in the database. And the idea was that, um, this having this really high quality data means that you could do a whole bunch of other things on top of it. Some of them consumer facing right around product search, product recommendation, um, you know, the ability for people to, uh, share their interest and preference and ask and answer questions around stuff, provide user reviews, sort of like rotten tomatoes, Metacritic style. Um, and then on the back end, we were able to take all of this data, both the product data and the um, kind of the user generated data around um, the products to be able to, um, uh, you know, like we sold the, the license, we, we like sold the product data to um, like Intel, for example, is one of our customers right, for the data. Right. Um, because as it turns out, they have all these OEMs that make, make laptops, for example, none of them use the same product schema for their product specs for their laptops. So we had all this normalized data. So it was actually better for them to pay us to get a data feed of their own products, so to speak, their own Intel based computers from us than to like do the work of like trying to normalize all the data amongst all these different OEMs. Figured, like just one example. Who figured that out? <laughs> who, who figured out the, what the normalization part? Yeah. Oh, I give that credit to Ryan because, like, I think he was just so like fo- laser focused on like making sure that the data, like, having a really great structured data right. product at the core of what we we're doing. And then the other thing that we did is we powered affiliate commerce um, and product data on publisher partner websites. So at the time we were required, we were powering about 100 million pages a month. Wow! Uh, and driving commerce, uh, you know, on a lot of those pages. Not every page made, you know, not every page. Um, like if somebody mentioned like an old product that wasn't sold anymore, like we'd still serve up the product data dynamically into that page, but we're not going to get an affiliate, you know, there's no affiliate opportunity there. Right. Uh, and, um, and so we focus on sort of solving the prop, those problems for publishers. And I think, you know, the tricky thing about the business, um, which is actually one reason I think we ended up being acquired by AOL is that you had to, um, you know, you had to sort of solve these problems around the having high quality data in order to do all these other things with it. And so um, it did require us to do, to spend the first, you know, couple of years just building out the sort of the consumer facing side where we're getting the data into the system and getting this, you know, information um, and review data and stuff like that. And then once we had that, we could build the sort of secondary part of it. We're able to build the, um, you know, the affiliate part and the, the data licensing part of it. And so we ended up being acquired by AOL 2013, February, 2013. And, you know, at the time, uh, there was a lot of interest around the intersection of content and commerce. Yeah. And so the plan was to take what we had built, the, um, the platform we had built and to, um, develop a next generation CMS on top of it, huh. uh, and use that to power off. Pardon? This was post acquisition, right? But so, so that was the part of the, the, the acquisition, the, the part of the plan around the acquisition right. um, was to do this. And so we actually started building out this next generation CMS uh, with the idea that we would bring um, first, like a, a, a new, C, a new content management system to all the properties at AOL um, uh, 
but that we would integrate, you know, all the social stuff that we had, all the product stuff that we had, all the affiliate stuff that we had, um, and, and do it for basically every property at AOL. And we got maybe like four or five months into that project. And then they decided that, um, they wanted to reduce capital expenditure in order to make the company more attractive to, for, as an acquisition, which was, you know, very, Tim Armstrong was very, very focused on finding an acquirer for AOL, uh, and eventually did in the form of Verizon. Um, and so the project ended up, um, being shuttered, which was a huge disappointment, um, for us. Cause you know, we'd all come in to work on this like really awesome problem and something that, you know, I've been, Ryan and I have been obsessed with content and, and data and, um, you know, content management systems for a long time. Yeah. And so it was a chance to, um, you know, take everything that we'd had built and sort of apply it to, you know, uh, 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 you know, even bigger scale. Um, you know, I ended up running, Ryan and I ended up running a group called Alpha at AOL, where we built experimental products, which right. was fun. Um, and we, 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 you know, took a lot of swings at the bat. Um, and, uh, beta AOL, like, oh, build from the gap. Yeah. So, so I was right. So I had two hats. I mean, I had the, 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 um, experimental product role. And then I was also a VP of strategy at AOL. And one of the things that I kept telling them was like, we need to be like beta works actually, um, <laughs> and be better at, at building things. And, um, the, uh, uh, and so, you know, one day they're like, cool, like we're going to, you know, take these three term, these three orphaned teams. Um, cause there were other teams at AOL that were orphaned, uh, after reorg and, uh, and we're going to put them under you and Ryan and you guys are going to build stuff. And so, um, so that's another thing that we did and it was a lot of fun. Wow. I mean, there's some, just so many things to un, unpack here. Um, for the incredible story. Um, but I, I, I don't like to hop over all acquisitions. Um, so, so let's go back to, yeah. so, so Engadget, right? So I guess what yeah. was your role at Engadget? Were you more involved in like the content editorial side or were you like involved in any kind of like the business side? Like who was the CEO, who was COO, et cetera? So, um, so, you know, Engadget was, so there's Weblog, so Engadget was part of Weblogs Inc. Um, and so Weblogs Inc, um, you know, Jason, Brian, and I were the co-founders and J Jason was a CEO. Um, Brian was the president and COO, yeah. uh, I guess. And, or he was definitely CTO. I don't know if we had a COO technically at the time. Uh, and then I was essentially like the chief kind of editorial officer, chief content officer right, right, for right. the, you know, and personally, and then personally edited Engadget, uh, and joystick for a time. And then I handed off joystick. Um, to another, uh, you know, another team. Well, we worked very closely together, right. those two sites. And with um, the most closely of any two sites in the network. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and I guess with, within um, Engadget, right? So I guess nearer this, around this time with Engadget, there's, you know, the internet yeah. is a kind of like in full swing. You know, Google is doing its thing. Were you able to kind of, like, was, was traffic still organic or were there any kind of, okay, let's try and, and, and monetize this or let's try and put some marketing dollars towards this or were you all still getting... We never, spent a, we never spent a single dollar on traffic. Wow. Never once. Not once. In fact, in fact, um, it actually, you know, and the same thing with Gadget. And I think that was maybe a mistake. I, you know, it's like, I, it was so... Uh, I was so reluctant. It felt like cheating to me, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I get, I get it. I mean... <laughs> and so in retrospect, like, I wish we had spent money uh, on, on that with gadget, because we, we, we were able, we were monetizing the traffic, um, via that, the affiliate stuff. And so, you know, we made it work. I think it just, it felt phony. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, and looking, and again, looking back, that was the wrong decision, but it was the right thing for end gadget, right? I think, you know, for us to not, to focus entirely on, on organic, growth. It was, um, you know, direct traffic. We had very strong SEO, all white hat stuff. We, you know, we just created, we just focused on creating great content right. and uh, making it easy to find and, uh, and did really, really well there. I mean, if you search for Apple iPod for a long time in gadget was ahead of Apple uh, yeah. and Google. Wow. Um, and so, you know, that, that was, uh, uh, you know, as other things started to show up like, um, other blogs and things like that. Like we, you know, we did our best to have good relationships and, and, you know, get links from other people. And, um, you know, before Twitter and, and Facebook and things like that, you would hope to get a link on like Slashdot <laughs> as a place where you would, you know, maybe drive some, drive some traffic. Um, but, uh, it's entirely organic. We didn't, we didn't do anything, nothing paid at all. I mean, I think a lot of media companies would envy <laughs> you guys in the sense that like, 
you know, to be able to say that they don't spend anything on traffic is kind of like a, you get like a, a medal of honor. I guess, in the media world to not spend money on traffic. But we know there are downsides to spending on traffic as well. And obviously, over the last few years, we've seen how media has taken a massive hit. Um, like a lot of, I mean, even in New York with, you know, I worked with a company, Greatest, who... Uh, oh, yes, of course. I, I, I knew the founder. Yeah, you know, Derek, yeah. So I, I worked yeah, with Derek yeah. for a while. Um, I was a right, he's a right-hand man. Uh, and yeah, like they had purely organic traffic as well. They had about 12 million uniques to the site and they never yeah. spent a, a dollar on traffic. And again, it was similar to your strategy in terms of like having good content, really easy to find, you know, really, you know, white hat SEO. Um, and it just, it just worked. Um, but I don't yeah. know if enough companies can, can say that these days. Well, I, I you know, I, I think, I mean, trust me, I spent a lot of time thinking about kind of CAC and LTV right now yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, for everything. And so, you know, I think one of the things that's hard around if you're, you know, I, I came up at a time when you just assumed that your CPMs were going to be garbage. Right. Um, and that even if you got, you know, um, premium CPMs that they were going to come down over time or that, you know, there'd be a lot of fluctuation. Mm. Um, that's something that, you know, and so I, I, it's sort of like, you know, like you hear about people that like, you know, went through like the great depression and like, they just never could get in the habit of ever spending money. Um, that's sort of how I was, you know, at that time it's, it's, uh, I just took nothing for granted and just, you know, felt like, okay, I have to be really, really careful about how much I, you know, I, I can't spend money on acquiring traffic because I can't monetize it. Uh, you know, I can't guarantee that I'm going to be able to monetize it mm. above what it costs. And so, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, as you get to scale and you start to have a lot more reliable data and you have the ability to sort of, you know, do more A-B testing around different things, I think you can start to get to a place where you can say, okay, and this is what a lot of sites do now, right? Which is say, okay, I can, you know, or more apps do, right? It's like I can spend a dollar fifty to acquire somebody and I know that I'll make a dollar like two dollars and fifty cents right. in terms of the LTV from them yeah. on average. And and I think that um, you know, I, I think that the uh the, the tools we have, I think that uh now to do those more sophisticated analyses, um are, you know, we're just things that like we just, you know it, I, I we were not equipped to do that stuff, you know, in, right. in that day at the scale that we were operating at, which was still, we were still pretty small in the grand scheme of things. And I guess any, when you see media companies today and how they operate and they spend millions of dollars on acquisition and maybe not getting the same on the back end, um, do you have advice? I mean, do you, you must have seen a ton of media companies just do this horribly wrong, right? Like, what do you think about media as it is as well today? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm not sure. I would say that um, for media companies that have a subscription component to what they're doing, um, spending on acquisition probably makes sense, right? I yeah. mean, I think the athletic is spending a tremendous amount on acquisition, yeah. as far as I understand, uh, yeah. and, and they're and they're probably seeing, you know, significant like high enough LTV to make it work, mm -hmm. or at least projecting that they can make it work. And, um, and so that's the thing, you know, I, I, I say whether or not, whether you're a media company or, or, or whatever you are, is that, um, you know, the framework that I try to use as an investor right now is to make sure that your product strategy, your acquisition strategy, and your monetization strategy work in harmony with one another. And it's sort of really easy to sort of say, like, to laugh it off, be like, of course they will, right? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> but sometimes you'll meet a company where it's like, hey, we are a, you know, we're a social product um but we're paying for users paying for installs um and we're losing you know and our day seven retention is you know nine percent um and you kind of look at it and say well you know you can't pay for users um you know unless you're gonna uh, be able to monetize them at a uh, in a way that justifies the cost. So right. your, your monetization strategy isn't working with your acquisition strategy which means that you need to have a different product strategy right like maybe you need to have a paid product, or maybe you need to have a, uh, you know, you need to think about like what kind of product you have and the way that you're going to monetize it. So if you're going to have a high volume, low LTV social product, you know, you're going to have to build a product that sort of, you know, propagates itself virally or, or, you know, or, or acquires users in some largely free manner. And I think, yeah, with, uh, and that's, you know, probably the biggest issue in consumer tech right now. It's, you know, people are happy to spend en endless amounts of money on acquisition but trying to figure out the ltv and the the roi on the back end like further down the line um and it, and it never suddenly works out 
Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I mean, I think that's sort of TikTok's game right now, right? Like they're spending yeah. a lot on acquisition. Yeah. Um, and I think that they are betting that they, you know, can get to a, a, not just a scale, but a level of sort of locking on the users that the monetization, all the other things that they're going to do down the line will be worth the cost that they're spending now. It helps to be part of ByteDance, which is, you know, a huge... <laughs> You know, it's the most valuable startup on the planet, yeah. at least, or at least it was a couple months ago. I don't know if that might have changed. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, the, 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 the tricky thing about this stuff is that, you know, if you're starting out and you don't have those deep pockets, right, which, you, you know, most people don't by definition when they're starting out, you can't sort of say, well, you know, our plan is to raise, you know, $50 million and, you know, buy all the installs that we need to get us to scale. And then like, it'll be successful because it's successful. Right. You know? Um, and, and I think that that is a pattern that a lot of founders, they, they like see and think that it's sort of trivial to emulate. Yeah. Right. It's like, you know, I mean, I get pitched, I got pitched a new social thing today. Right. And it's like, um, Hey, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to disrupt social. Right. And it's like, okay, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's really hard. And, and, you know, for us personally, you know, as early as we like to invest, we tend to not we tend not to do those things pre-launch now because it's just, you just want to see some retention numbers yeah. and engagement numbers yeah. that tell you that something's real here. Yeah. And I want to, yeah, I want to switch gears now and talk about, you know, Betaworks and, you know, venture investing, et cetera. So, what is Betaworks and what do you guys do? I told you what I think yeah. Betaworks is before and the, <laughs> the word on the street, what Betaworks is, but it'd be interesting to hear you say it. So Betaworks started as a studio, which also invested, um, you know, off the balance sheet of, um, uh, of that studio business. Um, and so, you know, they incubated new things. And so things like Bitly and Dots and Giphy came out of the studio build side of the business. And then... Yep. On the investment side, they had things like Tumblr and Kickstarter and Medium and Everlane and Venmo and GroupMe, uh, among others. Um, but uh, but a few years ago, and one re- and Betaworks was an investor in Gadget, my last company, and I've known John since 2003, the founder of Betaworks. Yeah. Um, so a few years ago, um, they decided that they wanted to do something they hadn't done before, which was actually have a true venture fund. I think um, you know the seed investing landscape had changed a lot. I think, um, you know, seed rounds had gotten much bigger. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, not having uh, the predictability of capital on when you have a studio um, meant that, you know, you didn't know even, you know, quarter to quarter, how much money you would have allocated, you know, beyond a quarter, how much money you could allocate to invest. And then, yeah. you know, follow-ons were almost impossible um, just because you just usually didn't have enough capital on hand to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. And so, um, I think they kind of did the math and looked at like if they had, you know, been able to follow, even if they just automatically followed onto everything, both the winners and the losers, they would have made a lot more money. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I joined in 2015 to help them basically spin out a new company called Betaworks Ventures. And so, uh, John, uh, Matt and myself are the three partners and, um, kind of co-own the management company behind that. Mm-hmm. And, um, Matt had been running the seed investment program at Betaworks and had been there a year or two before me. And so we started to, you know, kind of continue the legacy of, um, you know, of what Betaworks had been doing as an investor, uh, as, you know, off the balance sheet before, which was, you know, focusing on, um, you know, what we sort of think of as kind of frontier consumer, like, you know, interesting new consumer experiences, behaviors, platforms, ecosystems, um, you know, thinking about uh, the future of interfaces and and how, uh, uh, you know, the things that we're doing next around how we create, communicate uh, and uh, and connect. And, um, you know, I, I'd say that, um, you know, it's something that is kind of interesting because it's always changing, right? The frontiers of this stuff is, are always moving uh, in new directions. And so there's always going to be new experiences and interfaces and apps and things like that, that that we're that we're using and it helps to have a real strong curiosity around um you know around this stuff and where it's going yeah no totally and yeah like i said like you guys invest in loads of different things 
right? Um, yeah. Um, you know, I'd say that we, um, you know, we're, we're thematic investors, right? We don't invest in like, you know, real estate or fintech, um, you know, things like, or direct to consumer. We think about, um, you know, what are the new kinds of, um, you know, interfaces and interactions that people are having and, um, and what can we do to help, uh, you know, founders that are, you know, building these things, how can we help them, uh, you know, better understand, um, you know, what they're building and what the opportunities are and help them sort of advance, uh, you know, help them move that forward, whether it's around acquisition or, or, you know, product user experience design, stuff like that. Cause we all have experience, you know, as, people have built products um, and help, you know, build products to scale. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's, I'd say consumer tech is a really challenging space right now. Um, and there are a lot of investors that have sort of said, oh, I'm just going to focus on enterprise SaaS. Um, it's uh, much more, you know, yeah. um, and I don't blame them, right. Cause it's, it feels a lot easier. Um, but for us, you know, we're thinking about, you know, where are the opportunities around synthetic reality, uh, around, you know, audio um, and the fact that like, you know, we're all wearing AirPods right now. I'm not, I mean, I'm wearing regular headphones right now, but, um, uh, uh, you know, thinking about gaming and gaming as an ecosystem, gaming as a social platform, um, you know, thinking about new kinds of um you know, the intersection of life and work and how um, sort of almost the consumerization of life and work and how people expect to sort of consume their work experience in a right. way um, that they do a consumer product, which I know sounds a little bizarre, but, um, you know, people sort of want to have like a, uh, I'm mean, not, everybody has this luxury, right. But a lot of people want to be able to sort of, um, you know, engage with their work in a way that feels just, you know, suited for them. And, and, um, uh, you know, with sort of like, like, you know, tools and, and, uh, you know, with the, you know, set of tools that they feel like are the, you know, the right set of tools for them or right. that help them interact with their, you know, community or their, uh, company, uh, in the right way. Yeah. I mean, like I know a lot of your alumni, you know, Jake Levine, I had him on the show, uh, who was CEO of Dig and Electric Objects. And then, you know, had, uh, Aaron who funded Squad, um, yeah, we have some, we have some cool people. Um, and, and, and I guess, you know, like you said, you don't focus predominantly on like the traditional size of VC, but more on the consumer side, I guess, like what yeah. have you seen over the last few years in the consumer space? Um, you know, cause like I said, consumer has taken quite a bit of a hit in the tech world. Um, and actually the, you know, I had on Hadley Harris last week yep, from, from Maniac. Uh, yeah, he's great. Um, and he's basically saying like, he doesn't believe in the whole fallacy of like a brand, um, and consumer products are, have taken a hit because people don't have a moat, right? Like what are your, what are your thoughts on consumer tech as a, as a, as a space? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, here's what I, was like. I think it's, I think it's a difficult time for a lot of things around consumer because, um, you know, acquisition costs are high. Maybe they've come down. They've in some respects come down now because of what's going on with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I think by and large, the, um, you know, the reality is that we are seeing a, this was, a, I think the answer three months ago is different than the answer now. Right. And right. I think that right now we are seeing a lot of difference, different consumer behaviors, right? Because people are indoors and they're consuming a lot of things mediated through a screen um, and accelerating a lot of trends that we saw already happening, right? Whether it's distance learning, whether it's, um, you know, uh, um, uh, remote work, whether it is, um, you know, people um, consuming their entertainment, you know, consuming their entertainment uh, entirely through screens or whether they're, um, you know, instead of going to movies or, you know, um, uh, people playing more games and doing more and more social experiences online. And so that's all stuff that we, you know, felt like was inevitable in some respect. And I think it's happening, you know, more quickly than it, you know, would have happened, you know, how much behavior reverts back. I don't know. And I don't know. I think anybody that gives a prediction is, you know, it, I, I don't know how you can predict this stuff right now. Yeah. Because <laughs> we just don't, we just don't know. Right. Um, the thing that we think is interesting is like, you know, there is a moment where, you know, people are going to create new habits and, and, uh, you know, adopt new things. And some of those things are going to stick and maybe a lot of those things won't. And so we're interested in trying to find things that we think will stick, um, yeah. you know, and, and so there's an opening right now, I think for consumer startups that maybe wasn't there a few months ago. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so, you know, a, a lot of things in our portfolio are actually doing, um, you know, pretty well, all things considered, because they were already, you know, about 
social experiences online right. um, and whether that's stuff like stream captain which is casual games for you know streamers to play with their friends whether it's squad which is social screen sharing and you know whether it's rec room uh which is uh you know social metaverse type gaming um whether it's bunch which is video chat for gamers um you know a lot of the stuff is uh is doing really well journey which is um online collaborative meditation for us we've been trying to find these things for years now and um and it's been interesting to see you know, how this has created a window uh, for founders, which, you know, I mean, it, it, all things being equal, I prefer that we, you know, life was ha- normal and we didn't have the window, right? But, uh, you know, that's something that we are, are trying to track and better understand. And again, taking sort of day by day right now. Yeah. And you guys are still quite active uh, in terms of seeing startups, et cetera, right now. Yeah. Um, we've done uh, two deals over the past month or so, and uh, we have one more in the works. Wow, that's incredible. Okay, Peter, I'm going to work towards wrapping up. I know you have to shoot soon. Okay. So I have a few rapid-fire questions I want to ask you before you go. Oh, sure. Um, what has or who has been your biggest inspiration? Um, that's, a, that's a tough question to answer because I, you know, I feel inspired by you know, so many different things. Um, I mean, I'd say my father was probably, you know, such a huge inspiration for me because he, um, you know, someone who, you know, came to a country that he'd never lived in before, uh, right. and didn't even really speak the language, um, and, uh, and, you know, built a life, uh, you know, for himself and his family, but still kept his passion for, you know, things that he loved, like mm-hmm. photography and reading and, um, and just, uh, uh, you know, I think the fact that he just had this sort of different dimensions to himself is something that I always really uh, loved and, and, you know, respect. And I find, you know, hope I have him, you know, can sort of have him myself as well. That's good. Uh, favorite podcast? Uh, favorite podcast. Um, well, I love history podcasts. So probably I'd say hardcore history is the one that I sort of, yeah. it's like I drop everything and listen to. Um, and, uh, but I, I, I consume probably like several dozen history podcasts right now. Yeah. I just, I just, I can't get enough of them. Yeah. That's, a, that's uh, our, our fake history is another one that I really love. Okay. Uh, favorite blog? Uh, favorite blog? Um, I feel like you would like Shutekery. Yeah, I do like Shutekery, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I still, I mean, but I still read, you know, um, I mean, I still read like Engadget every single day. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, favorite book? I, I, you know, I finally read War and Peace last year, ah. which is great. Okay. And it's a favorite now. It's so good. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I haven't read it yet. Uh, favorite Instagram or Twitter account? Well, I don't use Instagram okay. um, at all. Um, I'm not sure I have a favorite Twitter account. I, I mean, I just follow people. I don't really follow any novelty accounts, I think. Okay. On, on Twitter. Uh, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? Uh, in a in a, a superpower sense or in a regular in, sense, in, in terms of pandemic sense. <laughs> well, another, another layer. Uh, yeah. I don't know any sense. Any sense? I ask this question. Just you know, some people say fly. Some people say uh, yeah, fly an airplane. I don't know. I think the one thing that I, I sometimes am not good at is um, letting myself enjoy being non-productive. Like mm-hmm. I, I tend to feel a lot of guilt around it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, you know, sometimes I think that like, I'd be better at both being productive and non-productive if I just, you know, discarded some of that guilt around it. I do. I care a lot of guilt around it. Um, advice you would give to your 21 year old self. Oh, um, I mean, sleep more. <laughs> um, and then, um, and I'd say, you know, here's what I'd say. The other piece of advice is I would say to myself is that, um, when I was 21, I, I don't, I don't, I, I think I was kind of an asshole. And, um, and I think the reason and I thought a lot about this and the reason I think I was is because I think I felt like if I was nice to people that they would take advantage of me mm. and that, you know, I think when you're young, it's really easy to sort of see the world in that way. Right. Which is like, you know, if I'm not tough, if I'm not careful, people are going to take advantage of me. And so I have to be sort of, I have to be on offense all the time. Right. And, you know, that was just really terrible way to operate in the world. Um, and I, I, I definitely wish I hadn't done that. Uh, if you had a hundred dollars in your favorite city, what would you spend it on? 
Oh, um, we've only got two left. Two questions left. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'd probably go out to eat. I'm vegan, so any any great vegan restaurant, I, I'd love to go to. Oh, right if you're vegan, that hundred dollars is going to go after the second meal. Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, it's expensive here. It's very expensive. Um, yeah. What's the one thing that startups should ignore in the early days? One, one thing. One thing that startups should ignore in the early days is um, they should not focus. They should not try to get publicity for themselves until they have a product that is successful. For themselves as in like as an individual or for the company? Oh, no, for, for the company, right? Okay. Because I, I think there's a temptation. Uh, oftentimes people will say, okay, you know, how can you get me on TechCrunch? And I say, get on TechCrunch, not going to do anything for you until you have a product that's working or, yeah. or any kind of publicity, right? And I think that that's, I think that one of the things that I, I really am glad about with Gizmodo is that I was able to make my state, my mistakes when we were small and nobody cared. And I think that that's something that, you know, obscurity is your friend when you're starting out. And I think there's a temptation to say, I just need to like blow it up and get as much, you know, get the spotlight on me as much as possible. And, um, you know, from day one, and that is actually not good because you want to be able to make those early mistakes when nobody is, you know, when nobody cares and figure things out. And what's your vision for Betaworks? What's your vision for, yeah, the company? Um, well, for Betaworks Ventures, I mean, we want to be the best, you know, consumer pre-seed startup in the in the world, <laughs> and uh, and continue to find great companies, and and to, I think to also be, you know, a first choice for founders that want to work with investors that have, you know, um, you know, the ability to, like, I mean, a real deep empathy for for them and and the things they're trying to do. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, uh, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If people want to find you or get in contact with you, what's the best way? Um, so uh, betaworksventures.com. Um, I look at everything that comes through the form there. Um, ROJ.AS. Also, you can contact me there or at Peter Rojas on Twitter. Awesome. Peter, thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you. Just want to say another huge thank you to Peter for coming on the show and sharing all those insights with us. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with your network. Until next time, guys, keep grinding.